All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. On today's show, I get the long awaited opportunity to speak with Raymond Casas. Ray was my junior corpsman when I deployed to Iraq. Ray did back-to-back deployments, first deploying with 511, and then immediately back with Scout Platoon. We talk about his journey from gang life and being a felon to getting shot in Iraq. Then we also talk about his three nearly successful suicide attempts and how he sees a bright future ahead. Sit back and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. It's recording and start the timer. Dude, it's so good to see you. It is. It's good to see you, man. It's been a minute. It has. I, I lost, or you lost all your hair and I gained it all, I think. No, well, it still comes, but I, I shave it. So it's just all right. easier. All right. So I'm back with my long awaited guest, one of my really good friends, but more so my. Iraq uh, buddy who we both have the same stupid purple thingy. <laughs> um, Ray worked for me in Iraq and he will say he didn't actually work for me, but Ray and I were with a uh, four scout tank platoon or fourth, fourth tank scout platoon. God damn it. I cannot talk today in Iraq in 2006. So Ray say hi. Hello. <laughs> So as you can tell by Ray's background, if you're watching the video, Ray is enjoying nice and sunny. Um, which part of Mexico? Uh, Cancun. Where it seems like he's gone to retire. Yeah. Yeah. Finally enjoying a retirement. That's the good thing. So yeah. I, like I said, I met May, or I met Ray in May of 2006 when we were both at Perhaps the worst base in all of the United States, Camp Lejeune, California, or Camp Lejeune, Louis, um, North Carolina. Wow, I really am not talking right today. <laughs> so I met Ray while we were process, while we were both processing through what they call Naval Mobilization Processing Center. I was being mobilized to go over to Iraq with 4th LAR, and Ray had just come home and for some insane reason said, I liked Iraq so much, I'm going to go back immediately um but let's start in the beginning ray you grew up in victoria texas right yes uh-huh. so growing up in victoria you're what a year older than me roughly i'm 49 right now yeah so growing up in victoria in the 70s and 80s did you want to join the military or was it something that kind of just came around no, actually, when I was growing up, I wanted to be uh, part of the mafia. And, uh, you know, I went all the way up until I was like uh, 18 years old and finally did what I needed to do to get into that kind of lifestyle. And I, I figured, you know, that, that just wasn't what I wanted. Uh, once I finished, uh, I did 11 years and three months of uh, adult supervision probation. 
And then uh, that was what made me decide, you know what, the military is what I need to do right now. So I did everything I needed to do to join the military. Mm-hmm. So you said adult, what was it? Adult supervision probation. What does that mean? Uh, what is what? What What does the probation mean? Oh, so I, I robbed a store, stole a car. And then uh, after that, they gave me uh, a pro- adult supervision probation. So how does one, because I mean, it's an interesting story. You, you and I have talked about it before in the past, but how does one go from um, that to deciding I'm going to try to join the military? I think what it was really the change of mind for me was when I was locked up because I, I was locked up for six months in the county, Victoria County Jail and the Coro uh, County Jail. that was the, the changer for me and that's when I decided you know what uh, I need to put this behind me in order to do that well I need to educate myself and then from there I decided well the best way to do it you know just for good would be to join the military mm-hmm. so I remember you saying that you had uh, after you got out you went to EMT and became a EMT right or am I yes. yeah yeah that was an EMT for and probably about five years. So were you always driven towards uh, the medicine side or did you think you were going to go in as, I don't know, an infantry guy or something else? Well, I really didn't have any ideas to what I was going to do in the military, but as far as um, getting them into medical, as I was going through educating myself, trying to figure out how to put my uh, illicit past behind me, I was taking, you know, talking to different people and they tell me, hey, why don't you try this and why don't you do that? And everything they told me I went for. So that's how I became an EMT. Uh, I can't remember exactly who it was or what location I was at, but they told me, you know what, you should go try the the paramedic class. And at that time it was separate EMT basic, EMT intermediate, then EMT paramedic. And uh, so I went and I took the the basic class just because they they recommended it to me and having the criminal history, that was something that I could get into without a problem. Mm -hmm. So how long did you actually uh, do the ambulance thing before you decided to join the military? Uh, You know what? I did that probably about, about five, five, maybe six years. Mm-hmm. Did you get any fulfillment out of it or did you still know you had to go into the military at some point in time? No, it was pretty fulfilling. It's a, once I got in trouble and, you know, got out on probation, the way to put it behind me was uh, educate myself. So I had a bunch of different other certifications, uh, CPR instructor, library instructor, worked as a welder, had a degree in welding, and I went into a lot of things and, EMT, it's really don't pay a lot, but you know, being able to help people and get into the different fields that I was able to after that, it really paid off. Right on. Um, so let's talk about you deciding to actually go in. So, how was that process? Because I know having a criminal record does play a little bit of havoc with getting you into the military. How long mm-hmm. did it take from when you met the recruiter to actually being able to join? Man, you know what? It was easy. Uh, I can remember uh, Petty Officer Second Class Mikan. He was my my recruiter. 
And uh, before I got off of pro uh, probation, the first thing I did, since that's what I wanted to do, was go and talk to the recruiters to make sure it's something that I could really do. And at that time, I don't think they do it anymore, but at that time, you, could, you were allowed to have one felony. So I had one felony, and then the other one was uh, deferred adjudication, which means they drop off of my record once I completed the, uh, my legal, legal obligation to them. So uh, when they told me I could, that's when I started, you know, losing weight and doing all that. But when I finished uh, probation, I went and talked to uh, Petty Officer Mikan. And um, you know what? Nine months later, I was in the, in the Navy. What year was that? That was in uh, 2001. So were you, uh, did you have to go through, which program did you come in is what I'm trying to ask. I went through uh, NMPS. I mean, did you go through... Uh, what non-prior service in non-prior yeah mm -hmm. so you went yeah. to boot camp and and core school then or did you come in on the apg where you kind of skipped boot camp and core school uh no i went to uh, boot camp in uh, great lakes okay so what was yeah. that what coming from someone who had spent some time uh and probably the closest thing you could call uh boot camp a jail and coming from your background how was it with the discipline at boot camp it was a little bit different for me. Of course, uh, I joined when I was already 31 years old. And uh, there was other people, you know, that program deals with older people, uh, mostly based on their education. And uh, we still had a bunch of the, the kids that were there. So we were called the Geritol group. But um, the thing that was different is my sense of discipline was like respect within like gang members and stuff like that, you know? And when it came time to being in the boot camp where we had to stand in formation forever and all that, I just really couldn't stay quiet, you know? I would keep like, man, this is crazy. This is stupid. And, you know, didn't really see anything, any logic behind what they were doing until I progressed a little bit further. I think until I really started, you know, showing or being concerned about my growth within the, the Navy. But even in boot camp, uh, I was always motivated because like the, the chief, what he would always use, uh, what would he say is that um, uh, that's jacked or something like that, that's jacked up. And well, if I wouldn't tell him the same thing. It's like, oh, that's jacked up and boom. <laughs> they yeah, me the, yeah, I was kind of outspoken, out of line most of the time, but you know, I got through it. Did you get rolled back at all for that or no? No, no. Uh, so um, what what month was that? Because that had a, if you joined in 2001, that must have been right around September 11th. Yeah, I, I think I got in uh, a little bit after September 11th, yeah. like November, December, something in that time frame. Oh, great. So you, you a Texas boy, went to uh, Great Lakes in the middle of the winter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because I would remember 9-11, um, I was there in the gym down in the basement working out when they uh, when all that uh, transpired. Mm -hmm. What did you think? I mean, knowing that you were going to, into the Navy, what did you think uh, about 9-11? I was pretty motivated for me because I, I seen that as a chance to go to combat, which was my, my goal the whole time. It was to be able to go to combat to me. In my eyes, that was like uh, paying a debt to society. So um, now you go to boot camp. Did you? Did they send you to Corman School because you were EMT, or did they just send you back to uh, your unit? 
I was scheduled to go, but uh, before I went, I took off to Iraq. Oh, damn. Okay. So yeah. when were you, because that's right, you were, you came in in the reserve. So after boot camp, they send you back to uh, your reserve unit? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I went back to the reserve unit and was doing the weekend thing there. Uh, did a um, bunch of, um, how was it, ATs, right? Yeah. A bunch of ATs that I volunteered for. And then uh, I volunteered to take the uh, 8404 FMSS training. And that's how I finally got to get deployed out, right? So um, when you, where did you go to field med? Did you go to Lejeune? Did you go to Pendleton or did you do the reserve one? No, uh, Camp Johnson. Okay. There and, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, over, over by Camp Lejeune. Yeah, yeah. So how was that training for you? Um, being with the Marines, to me, it was there's a lot more discipline, in it. and you, especially you, being in camp, the Camp Lejeune area, it must have been pretty damn uh, boring. It, yeah, I thought it was pretty pretty cool. It was different, and I already had the taste from boot camp on kind of like what it was going to be like. So I was a little more uh, ruly then, so a little more kind of into the whole military and rank thing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, were you a third class petty officer or a, a HN? Yeah, actually, you know what? Uh, because of all my experience and education, I actually started out as an E4. Okay. So you were an E4 then, which yeah. means they, gave, they actually gave you some responsibility once you uh, got down there. Right, right. I was a squad leader for a second section there. Mm-hmm. So now, um, when you came back, obviously they put you with the Marine Corps unit, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So who were you drilling with? Because I know who you went over to Iraq the first time with, mm -hmm. but um, I don't, I didn't think they had a unit in Texas. No, I joined, uh, I got attached to 514 just for volunteering to go. And there, there were an artillery unit that that's the first people I went up with. Uh, but I was... Uh, Man, I can't even remember. That's so long ago. Uh, no, I was, I was training out at uh, Camp Mabry in Austin. But okay. I, yeah, I can't remember the, the unit that so I was attached to then. So you probably 123 I, would be my guess. So um, how did that go down for you? Obviously, you're in the reserves. Uh, the invasion of Iraq happens. You don't go to that one. But you go in, what, 2005-ish? to Iraq. September, uh, yeah, 2005. So mm -hmm. I always have to ask people who deployed. Um, I know just from knowing you that you were really close with your mom and your stepdad mm -hmm. and you had your daughters. How was that conversation when the orders came up, when they were like, hey, uh, Ray, you're going to go to Iraq the first time. How, how did that go down? How was that conversation? Hey, with mom, of course, you know, the whole crying and all that. I think my daughters, too, were kind of concerned with, uh, you know, if I was going to make it back or not. And uh, But for the most part, they knew that that's what I was uh, aiming for the whole time. Because that's all I talked about was, you know, being able to deploy and what I had to do, extra training I had to take or whatever to be able to go. So now you get orders, you get obviously mobilized. Uh, probably, I'm going I'm I'm to make the assumption you guys went through NMPS Camp Lejeune again the first time yes uh-huh and then you meet up with this new basically you did what i did uh you meet up with the unit you know nothing about 
So what was that experience like getting to know these guys, the BAS guys? Uh, how were you assigned out? And I know they were an artillery battalion, but they didn't do the job of an artillery battalion. Well, they, they were artillery, but when we were in Iraq, we were doing uh, patrolling and we were also the QRF. So we had a, a totally different uh, duty when we were in Iraq. So what was it like meeting up with these guys in your training before you guys left? Um, I think it was kind of just mutual. I mean, you know, I'd already been through the training and all that. So I was kind of used to just being attacked or going to different units and stuff like that, you know, working with different individuals all the time. So it, it was a little bit different. Some of the people were a little bit on the special side, but, you know, outside of that, it was a good experience. Yeah. So what, um, were you assigned to the BAS for the time being, or were you assigned to a company on that, on that uh, deployment? Uh, company, yeah. So um, let's talk about you guys getting there to Iraq. So how was, where did you guys end up in Iraq on that, on that deployment? Um, there at Camp Fallujah. Okay. So, so you were, you were yeah. back where we were at. Um, were you guys based out of Fallujah or did you guys end up at like a Cobb or a, a FOB? No, we were based out of there, but uh, we would work uh, Camp Flanders. We would go to uh, the water uh, pump house there. So we'd do the, the fob there. We'd go, uh, we'd take turns. So we end up staying there like two, three weeks at a time. And then from there, uh, we would go out and back onto Camp Fallujah. Mm -hmm. So how was your, how was your time there in, in terms of getting used to everything when you guys got there? Obviously, first time deploying no idea what to expect um and you show up in fallujah which 2005 is just right after about a year after the invasion of fallujah did, did you guys see a lot of insurgent activities early on a lot of what insurgent activity early on uh no you know 2005 was kind of really not that that bad it was uh for us anyway i mean we'd get a lot of incoming missiles and a lot of IED activity, but as far as actual, you know, uh, firefight exchange with them, you know, it wasn't that bad. We so did, what, we did uh, make a lot of arrests and then uh, also found, a, you know, a lot of the uh, Iraqi people that were by their, you know, tortured or whatever by their own people. Yeah. Damn. So what was, um, talk to me about your first incoming experience. Mm, I don't really know what to think about it. I mean, it was kind of different because uh, when they sound the alarm, of course, everybody's running for those, uh, the barricades to try to get under cover or whatever. Um, the first one that, that really made the impact is because the missile fell right in our compound right there where we were staying, where we were deployed out for the QRF and stuff. It went in there. I think when that one hit, it was kind of different it was real now because now it was closer to me based you know being on the other side of the base and just hearing the alarms go off so when the when that one hit there it kind of made you know a connection with the alarm and an actual you know I, uh, missile coming in yeah yeah did um did you have to do much uh corman medical work while you were over there on that on that mission no really didn't not then uh we just had one uh staff sergeant that they hit a ditch and he fell into the, the turret and kind of ripped his face, but that was it. Mm -hmm. Most of the time there was just training the Marines, you know, keeping them up to par. And uh, we were constantly out. And you, being with the QRF, we were pretty busy with that too. 
were you guys doing foot patrols or were you doing vehicle patrols? Oh, uh, we did both. Yeah, mechanical foot patrol, especially when we were at Camp Flanders, we'd go and do foot patrols around the area and stuff like that. Yeah. So this this uh, this deployment lasted till what, like May of 2006 then? Because you, you had literally just got back right when we all got there uh, at, at MPS, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. So when I met you, I think we had a brief conversation, but I don't remember it. What was your motivation to go for round two? Ah, uh, man, you know, to be honest with you, the, the whole reason I had joined the, the military was to go to combat. And my mind uh, process was to go and get killed so that way my daughters would get the benefits, right? It didn't turn out that way, but that was my mindset. So when they told me that, you know, they had uh, openings and they needed equipment, I just said, hey, yeah, I'll stay, you know, just, that was what I wanted to do, yeah. So we meet in um, May of 2000 or June. Yeah, I think it was June 1st, May 1st or June 1st, 2006. Um, I get assigned, like I said, to 4th LAR Bravo Company um, with the crazy guys who want nothing more than to win Medal of Honors, as they put it. Um, just a whole bunch of E5s who couldn't tell, the, tell their head from their asses half the time. And you kind of pointed me in the right direction to find 4th Tanks. Because um, you knew I, wa- I did not want anything to do with those guys and so you helped me get over there you ended up leaving like two weeks after we got there i ended up get, showing up i ended up meeting up with you guys what in august i think well you got when you guys came out to 29 palms what was your what was your initial impression of our crew um when you met up with them realizing that it was going to be two corpsmen 29 marines no officers and the senior the senior person was a staff sergeant mm. I, I didn't really think much about the like the chain of command or anything like that i think my only concern was we had what two sets of twins and a set of brothers yeah so, <laughs> i think that was like the the main concern there you know so and then uh let's see I'm not sure both twins, but I know for sure that they had just had LASIK surgery on the eyes too. So, oh, Danny and uh, yeah, yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah. that that was another concern there because they they shouldn't have been there, but you know it worked out for them. So, yeah, that that whole mess with the brother with the whole brother thing probably should not have gone down that way. How so what the the whole thing with the brothers probably should not have happened that way. No, I didn't think so either. I wouldn't you know, up with it, but, you know, everybody was kind of like, well, doc, let's just let it be or whatever, you know, we're going to have separate, you know, separate uh, teams and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, even, even if we could have said something, it it wouldn't have made a difference. That's the Marines allowing those guys to get uh, mobilized. So, so Mm -hmm. people understand what what we're talking about. Typically, if you have siblings in the unit, one's going to deploy, one's not, um, in this case, we had three sets of siblings, as Ray pointed out, two sets of twins who all deployed. Fortunately, we had two sections, so it worked out, you know, only half the twins and half the brothers would die if something bad well, happened. A couple of interactions there that we all end up at the same place at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on a couple of, on more than one occasion. So um, when you, when we met up, in um 
29 poems. I, I would consider a, you, at least you and I, semi-fortunate. Um, you had a friend over there. And I was fortunate enough to have my car with us. So our, our training days were quite different than most, um, most people who did train at 29 Palms. Mm -hmm. I, I think we had more Corman stuff to do on main side than uh, was probably legal. <laughs> but hey, we, we did stay fit while we were out there. So when we got out to 29 Palms um, and did our training, we did all the rifle ranges that we could. One of the downsides about not having an O with us was we were kind of left to do whatever the hell we wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I didn't see that as a downside. <laughs> no, not at all. But if we, if we were really focusing on getting some good training in, I'm pretty sure we missed some good training, <laughs> but I mean, we had a, we had a blast. Then um, we all went home for our pre-deployment leave. Right. Mm-hmm. And I hope you don't mind talking about this, but something happened to you when you were back in Texas mm -hmm. that took us a little bit to fix, but fortunately the unit got you covered and you got, you made it back in time to deploy. Mm -hmm. um, did you ever get that resolved? Yeah, actually uh, what happened is of course I got arrested, but I don't think we were at home on leave. We weren't supposed to leave. So you oh. know, I was there without authorization. Yeah. So when I went uh, there, I got arrested because uh, I went out to drink with some friends before heading back and um, child support put a warrant on me when I was in Iraq the first time and they were supposed to lift it and uh, they didn't lift it. So when I went out to drinking, some police officers, hey, you got to smoke like 50 feet from the door. I said, oh, cool. I'll just sit here on your car. And he got mad. So he checked my uh, my uh, license, my identification, and then, you know, he fits seen that there was a warrant. So, yeah, I got arrested when I was there. And uh, I contacted, uh, actually, it wasn't me. Roxy contacted the chain of command and, and kind of got them moving. And they kept calling and pushing and pushing. And, and then uh, what ended up happening is the uh, DA's assistant, uh, finally, they, they just let me out of jail. So the, it, that was just wrong on the um, child support division side because I'm making all my payments, everything, you know, nothing was behind or anything. So they just failed to lift that uh, warrant. When I was in Iraq the first time, they kept having comprehension uh, meetings and, uh, and um, they would say that I wasn't showing up, even though I was calling them from Iraq. Telling oh, wow. them I was in Iraq. My ex, uh, the baby's mom was telling them, hey, he's not here. Why are you still having these meetings and all that? And then when I called him, the, she said, you know what, we're going to put a warrant out for your arrest. So you come and see me, we'll lift the warrant. Well, as she said, I went and seen her and she didn't lift the warrant. So that's oh, how well. I ended up the arrest over there. Yeah. I mean, that, that probably happens to a lot of service members. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Because those, those meetings there, uh, compliance meetings, uh, they, they have them just, I mean, you can be a month behind or whatever, and they'll, they'll continue having them. And that's what they did with me. They just kept having compliance hearings. And even though we were in close communication with them, pretty routine at that point. And then, uh, you know, they still failed me. Uh, it, it sounds like someone just had an ego or a chip on their shoulder that didn't want to. Because she told uh, the chain of command, she told them, well, you know what? Raymond cannot use being deployed to Iraq as an excuse. Uh, and I can't remember what they told him, but they came back. It's like, excuse me, you know, going to Iraq is not an excuse by no means. And he volunteered to go up there. So, 
Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yay. So on that note, um, you make it back. We have um, we spend some more time training and then we finally get on the buses to head off to uh, Iraq. I have to say we probably had one of the most unique flights over to Iraq that time. And I'm blaming I'm blaming our lucky charm number two second time around guy who made us had the really unique flight over. So as normal, we fly out of uh, March Air Force Base, head to Bangor, Maine, Bangor, Maine, to Shannon, Ireland, land in, I want to say, was it Budapest, Hungary? I think it was Ireland when the motor caught on fire. No, no, that was that was Hungary, I think. Hungary or Romania, one of the two. That was it? Our, yeah. our final leg. And we're at a place where we're not supposed to be off the plane and get refueled, take off. And next thing we know, we're a crash landing (laughs) by all, by all metrics. If the, if both sides of the airfield is are lined with emergency vehicles, I consider that a crash landing (laughs) with an engine on fire. So we land and we spend the next several hours in the plane trying to figure out what's going on. When are we going to get a plane? Um, We're late to war by almost a full day but we end up spending what almost 20 hours in the airport between gates 19 and 22 or some weird thing like that oh i still have pictures of you laying on the floor um uh, all the guys and i i still remember that um that cafeteria area that Mm -hmm. we could go get food from and the look on people's face the next morning when they saw hundreds of U.S. Marines and Navy sailors with their <laughs> just laying on the floor like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. But, yeah. but we finally did make it to Iraq. Um, and like I said, a day or two late, we end up staying at Camp Virginia or flying out of Camp Virginia into Takata, where for me... Though I was technically your senior, it was my first time in country, and I relied on you a lot. Uh, do you remember the convoy over? Mm-hmm. Were you on the first one or the second one? I think you and I went together, didn't we? Yeah, I believe we did, and I think it was the first one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was definitely the. I went over on the first one. I know that for sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, what was your thought when you heard our mission? When I heard what? When you when you heard what our mission was going to be. Mm, I thought it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> really? but yeah, you really cool. did have that death wish at that time, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was it was going to be different for sure, which it did end up being different from our oh, first yeah. tour. Yeah, we our our mission was basically drive uh, circles around two sections of MSR Mobile, which was a highway, mm-hmm. at as slow as humanly possible while looking for IEDs, not disarming mm-hmm. them, not. Try our best not to trigger them, which we failed miserably on several of them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, so that was an in, that was a really, really kind of a weird situation for me thinking about that. Going, I think I'd rather walk. Yeah. But we we convoy over, and I just remember that being the longest. I think I looked it up later. It was like six miles, and it was the longest six mile drive I think I've ever taken in my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It, it was cool. I think that was like one of the best things about being a reservist. So, and also being a, a corpsman, you know, because like I never participated in any of the Marine games, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like 
filling sandbags and stuff like that. I was just, you know, my job is to make sure that you guys stay hydrated and don't hurt yourself, you know. But it, and the cool thing with being reserved, too, is I had an opportunity to go up with two different, you know, um, companies and, and actually get to experience what each one was like. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I, I think that was super important. I, I don't know if I would have had the same experience that I did had I stayed with LAR. I was glad that we were doing... I mean, this crazy, no one's ever seen a bunch of enlisted guys show up without any leadership and pull off what we did. We had a really good, overall, I think the mission was really good. So yeah, the mission was, yeah, it was great. So we get there over to Camp Fallujah. Um, we unload, grab our can, which I think you and I had like the first, we stayed together. Um, and that first night we had a mortar attack mm -hmm. and everyone started to run out to the bunkers. But I kind of, again, following your lead, I think you and I hid under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember right. Mm -hmm. um, which was kind of hilarious. I, th I think I literally remember you saying, if it's going to hit us, it's going to hit us. So why go outside? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. good, good point. <laughs> So you, um, the next day, I know we split up at that point in time. You had, you had second section. I had first mm -hmm. and I went out, we came back the next day. I think you guys went out. What was your, what was your take on the first time you went out doing the mission itself? Uh, I think it was, I still had the same mindset as like the first time I went up. With when we'd go out and do patrols and stuff like that because the first uh, time we went out, we really didn't have any action or interaction with anything at all. You know, we were still doing the transition from the other people, from the other uh, Marines that were there previously. So we were kind of just going through that. So I didn't really see too much of a difference the, the first time I went out, yeah. Well, what about the first time you went out as it was just us, just scout platoon? Mm, I think I did, really didn't feel a difference in anything until we actually had our, I guess, our first IED encounter. Then that was a little more, then it started, you know, showing the difference in the, the two different tours. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just remember that from my perspective, you could see how bad like Iraq had gotten from all the craters and all the, all the shit that was shot up as we left every day. Um, do you remember your first IED encounter? Not getting, not first, last, but when you guys first found the first one? Yeah, the, the first one, uh, we were using the grappling hook and, uh, you know, they were throwing from the turret, throwing it out. They hooked the tire. And then when they started moving the vehicle and reverse, then the, uh, that's when they had exploded. So that was the first one that, that we encountered when we were there. And I think that was maybe on our, it may have been our, our third patrol, something like that. It didn't so, take too long. So that was, I didn't really, I thought you guys had a couple of fines before you guys had that one that blew up. I thought you guys had found a couple that, that didn't blow. No, not yet. That was, that was the very first one right there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. um, again, uh, it's kind of hard to, to say how much medical training we had, but how little we actually used, I think. Because on the, so what Ray's describing is, sounds horrific. My God, the 
front end of the vehicle must have been blown off and it turned out to be what one 45 millimeter um, mortar that didn't even damage that little box that hung off the front of the uh, vehicle because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that in all honesty that was the majority of what we ran into were smaller ieds that rung your bell for sure like everyone mm-hmm. in that vehicle had a rung bell but in terms of it's not it, they weren't that wouldn't have been big enough to blow apart the vehicle mm-hmm. by any means so as we're settling in um i want to say sometime early november because we had the early november late october um we had a encounter we'll say a firefight for my section mm-hmm. that um I forgot whether we were going out and you guys were coming back in or you guys had already, or we were coming back in and you guys were going out where we were lighting up uh, a building that we were taking fire from. And no, you guys were coming back in and you guys spotted someone and you actually had to do your job as a corner because a certain unnamed member of our uh, unit got the, probably the luckiest shot in the world off. Um, what was that incident like when you actually had to go do everything that you were trained to do? Because I was on the other side of the firefight, so I had yeah. no idea that there was even wounded till after. I think we ran into you guys five or ten yeah. minutes later. Yeah, it was it was okay. It was different. Um, I think the the biggest part about it is since it was an Iraqi national that got shot in the head. Then uh, we were supposed to transfer him to Camp Lejeune. I mean, I'm sorry, to um, Camp Fallujah, since we caused the injury. But they didn't want him there, so they sent us to one of the Iraqi hospitals. And when we got there, it's like everybody came bombarding out of there. Like, <laughs> so what are we going to do now? You know, what happened? So I think that was kind of the, the only thing there. And then when we took him inside, you know, it's, uh, it was completely different. You could definitely feel, you know, the presence of danger there. It was just like, you know, I think we outnumbered them was the thing, but, uh, you know, we were there until they finally made the decision to go ahead and take them to uh, Camp Fallujah where we were supposed to. But the, the guy pretty much was coherent still, you know, being able to start the IV and everything on him, you know, pretty much just maintaining, you know, his, his vitals until we got there. Because it was it a head wound or was it a not a head? Yeah. Wound? It was yeah, a head wound. Mm-hmm. so uh, I think one of the things that people think of is when we wound either enemy prisoners of war or local nationals, we just kind of leave them there. That's not what we do though, right? I mean, we at least especially with our unit, we always try to treat everybody with decency, even if we thought you were a bad guy. Right. <clears throat> yeah, we had to treat them the same as if it was one of ours. So. Mm-hmm. so did we ever, did you ever figure out what happened with that guy? No, never did. I, I know they, they flew him out to someplace else, but I don't know if it was within the, the American system or the Iraqi system. Oh, okay. Crazy. So after that, shortly, um, what happened? The we had uh, a certain date that came up in November. I cannot remember what happened. Something big happened in November. Now, why am I drawing a blank on it? Um, one of our guys had something happen to him. One of our guys. You. I'm. I'm playing oh. with you. <laughs> in November. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, like, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. 21 November got shot in the chest. Mm-hmm. Do you mind walking us through that? No, no not at all. Uh, so we were doing our, our routine patrol, and then um, we seen a guy up on the top of the hill. You know how the hills would kind of like oversee the road? Yeah, like so the, the big berms. Like, yeah, kind of in a, a you know deep area there where they could post up and ambush or whatever. So we seen him up on the, the top, figured he was a spotter. And then uh, we stopped on the uh, MSR mobile. The sergeant decided that he wanted to go up by himself to go and you know check this individual out and uh so we were all kind of just following his lead when we get there um it was we discovered in what they classified as an ied making factory it's had a lot of uh, wire refrigerant parts and stuff like that in there so we set up a uh, a cordon around it and then um when we were doing the cordon there was a car that, that drove by and then uh, he came back in reverse, and uh, you know I reached for the radio. I asked the, the sergeant, "Like, hey, did you guys send that car back? Did you guys send that car back?" And before I knew, within uh, I was shot in the chest. It went above the sappy plate, and uh, what really saved my life was that it shot through my M16. And then uh, you know I wasn't leaning against anything, so I was able to fall freely. And then just started rolling, hit the PRR. I've been hit, take cover. I've been hit, take cover. I've been hit, take cover. I think the crazy thing that kind of, you know, a lot of people don't think about is all the displaced uh, adrenaline when something like that happens. Once I got behind um, the cover, first thing I do was stand as tall as I could, throw my arms and hands in the air and just, hell yeah, motherfucker, you know. <laughs> it was just a lot of displaced you know energy adrenaline and and all i didn't even realize i had been shot you know i thought it hit the sappy plate and when they were calling in the sit rep i told them that i hit the sappy you know let them know it hit the sappy and when i got in the vehicle then i decided well you know what let me check just to make sure and when i opened my vest well then i see the hole there and i kind of made it a little bit different you know you could feel where you just the blood runs out of your body <laughs> It is like a little bit crazy. And then, it, you know, kind of got nervous, wasn't too sure, you know, how it was going to go or anything like that. And then uh, the worst part, I think, was the drive back to base because, man, they were driving crazy. They wanted to get me there, you know. And I'm like, hey, I'll be okay. Slow down, slow down. But they just kept going. And so, mm-hmm. so did you treat yourself or did you rely on one of the Marines to uh, help treat you? Uh, well, the Marines looked at me, uh, Mason did, but then basically all I did was put the gauze and tighten my vest as tight as I could and, you know, go from there. Because mm-hmm. I remember I walked out of my, uh, out of our can and I was like, oh, by the way, Doc's been shot. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. The, that, that was literally the whole, the whole statement was, yeah, Doc, Doc Costas has been shot. Like, yeah. um, okay, what do we know? So I remember yeah. we grabbed, uh, Oh God, I forgot what his name was. The medical officer from uh Fifth Marine Regiment. I grabbed him. We met you guys over at uh Fallujah Surgical when you showed up. <laughs> and I think the whole crew was there taking pictures with you. And so that kind of took you out of the fight for the majority of the deployment. You were able to support us and uh help out over at the um the RAS, the regimental aid station. Did it change your mindset after you had gotten shot about going to war and dying? 
I think it was uh, again. It was different. It was real at that point. Then I went back out. I think I was out for like three months, three surgeries, something like that. And then on Valentine's Day, I went back out on patrols. So when I went back out on patrols, I just couldn't make myself small enough. You know, every yeah. time I tried to get behind a barrier or something like that, it just never seemed that I was going to have the proper cover to keep from getting shot again. So it definitely was different. It impacted me quite a bit. I didn't think it would, but, you know, I remember, I remember you, there was talk at one point in time about sending you home. Um, mm -hmm. The the doctors at Fallujah Surgical thought that that would be the best thing. And I remember where you were successful and I was unsuccessful. They did let you stay. Uh, do you, do you ever question not coming home? I think that um, if I would have came home, when I got home, I wouldn't have had so many problems readjusting. But since I stayed there and, you know, I was able to see that you, your unit or your group got blown up and stuff like that, you know, other things that happened, you know, and then going back out and having to kind of like readjust that, that sense of insecurity, you know, because when you first go out before something happens, you feel like, OK, I'm with my boys, you know, we got each other's back you know, it's going to be hard for something to happen. But when it happens in that sense, it's, a, you know, plus security is no longer there. So it, it set a different mindset for me. And I think, uh, you know, I would have come home right after I got shot. It would have been a different, you know, and I think I say, I, I really don't know, but I think it would have been a different outcome as far as, you know, how much I struggled with readapting when I got back. Do you, do you remember what some of the highlights were for you from, uh, from being over there? Just some of the goofy stuff that we did. I mean, after you got shot, we got mortared in the uh, church. And mm -hmm. there was that shit show where I've always said this. The one thing you do not want to be is one of 30 corpsmen when there's one patient. Because everyone mm -hmm. wants to put their two cents in. And there yeah, was that it, I don't think it was a church, though. It was uh, well, during, I think his name was Pickard. Yeah, it was he, during the memorial. I call it the right, church because that's... That's usually the only time. I, that's how I looked at it. Yeah, yeah. But um, that auditorium, for lack of a better word. Right, right. And we had that one senior chief that I think you and I were like one of the first two people to roll up on. That RP, the religious program specialist guy who got the cut on his head. We took him in the back and all of a sudden there were 15 other corpsmen. You and I both just said, fuck it. <laughs> you guys got it. We're, we're going to leave. Bye. <laughs> and snuck out the back. Um, there were so many good times that we had over there. I have to admit it. I do miss it a lot. Um, and we'll get to 2020 in a bit, but 2020 did remind me a lot of uh, Iraq in its own weird way. Mm -hmm. So um, I know you did eventually come home uh, earlier than the rest of the unit. Yeah, uh, I believe it was like two weeks earlier than, than uh, when our deployment ends. Mm -hmm. Were you in a good space when you came home? Was I in a what? Were you in a good place when you uh, got sent home? Oh, they, they sent me to the uh, Wounded Warrior Battalion, Camp Lejeune. Mm -hmm. No, but I mean, up, up here in your head, were you in a good place when you came home? Uh, I don't really think so. I don't think so. It took a lot of, you know, a lot of time to finally readjust. Mm -hmm. So what was your time like at Camp Lejeune? Were, were they taking care of you over there or was it? 
it was it was different because it was the wounded warrior battalion but yet there was a lot of marines there they were hurt doing physical therapy or the, they were hurt in a car wreck you know nothing to do with with combat so i didn't really relate the wounded warrior thing to just any any person that was wounded any marine that was wounded i thought that was going to be all you know for uh you know people that were wounded in combat so it kind of took a little adjustment there but i did meet a lot of good marines that had a lot of serious medical and mental issues there while i was there so were you they able to, getting used to were you able to use uh services did they have stuff going on for the wounded warriors Ah, uh, man, you know, they always had all kinds of stuff going, but I never really participated in it. Yeah, I just preferred to be left alone. And yeah, at that time, I was on oof, probably like 21 different type of medications. So I was grueling most of the time, zombied out, you know, always arguing with the sergeant major, the captain or the colonel. Something was always going down. How the hell did you get that uh, that promotion? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the more I, I know i know i put you in for it but i'm still trying to figure out how you got that promotion with how much you fought and argued over the stupidest little shit yeah well you know i don't know i guess it was just mostly based on you know the things that we did while we were in combat i mean because i let me say hands down you were probably the better of the of either one of us both as a corpsman and knowing your medical skills mm -hmm. thankfully neither one of us had to put those too heavily to the test because mm -hmm. i mean i don't i treated more actually i say i treated 90 percent civilians and it was stupid shit uh and some of the most frustrating stuff i think both of us can relate to is when we detain people unless we had quote unquote evidence we couldn't bring them back to fallujah and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know how many times a uh, guy with battery acid burns on his hands, like walking in the center divider. Oh, don't bring him in. We can't do anything with him. Mm -hmm. Treat, treat him and, and send him home. I was like, dude, the guy has battery acid burns on his hands. He was probably mm -hmm. car carrying a car battery. And mm -hmm. oh wait, there's no, there's no um, pep boys around here. Mm -hmm. And we knew what it was. I, I don't know how many times you guys ran into that, but that seemed to be the common thing over there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was different. It just, uh, they really didn't want the Iraqis there, the Iraqi nationals, unless they were, you know, it was supposed to be like the first time I went up, if we caused the injuries and we took them, treated them and everything else. But uh, the second time, they really didn't want to deal with it because we had, actually there was a lot of action too. We had a lot of Marines that were going down from the, the sniper. Yeah, I mean, we lost with the tracks battalion that we were attached to, or tracks company. We mm -hmm. lost uh, two from tracks and one from tow. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. fortunately, as far as I know, that was it, right? Just those three. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I looked up the other day uh, after I got shot. They did a, uh, I think it was Los Angeles Times was there, and they did a newspaper report or uh, interview with me. It's uh, it's on the internet. You can see there, and they have the uh, two Marines. I think it was uh, Pickard and uh, Tillery was one of them. Yeah, yeah. So they they have their names in that article. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, and we were so lucky with some of the crazy shit that we ended up stumbling into the mm -hmm. uh, the mission out to Karma. The time that uh, we went out the day before I got blown up with the SEAL teams doing that ECP. 
you guys had all sorts of craziness, including when you got shot, that we did not lose anybody mm-hmm. at all. So, I mean, I think that that was a good sign of that we were successful at what we did. Yeah. Now, now, coming back um, and going through all of your treatment, you were finally medically retired in 2009-ish? I believe it was 2010, yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you ready for that? at that point in time? No, not really i, I kind of i wanted to stay in that's kind of what i was dedicated for or dedicated to but yeah it just didn't work out that way mm-hmm. do you think um do you think you would have done 20 years had you been able to stay in oh yeah yeah because uh, the military really is a it's a great job it, it, it made a big difference in my life anyway mm-hmm. it, it definitely is on that side so you leave North Carolina, South, wait, yeah, North Carolina, um, or as I call it, the real swamp, mm-hmm. and get back to Texas. You end up going down to what, Del Rio? Yes. Yeah, I actually lived in uh, Cunha, Mexico. That's right. You kind of bounced back and forth. What made, yeah. you, what made you go down to Mexico, to that part of Mexico? Uh, well, actually, a snake I was going to get married to, but... Yeah, that's what took me down there. And, and then from there, came back up here to San Antonio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you also got involved with the military order of the Purple Heart while you were in um, uh, North Carolina, right? Um, yeah, when I was in North Carolina is when I started with them. And then when I moved to San Antonio, that's uh, I was the Americanism officer for Chapter 1836. Mm-hmm. So what was your what got you into it? I, that When you told me about it, that would have been the last thing. I would have thought that you would have been involved with at all, but let alone getting involved with the officer stuff being, mm-hmm. but what, what was your draw to it? Oh, I don't think I was really drawn to it. I was more drawn to helping the other uh, service members who were transitioning, transitioning through because uh, when I transitioned through, it was pretty much a train wreck. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. Then I went to Audie Murphy one time and, you know, got into the freaking intern there. They called code blue or whatever, locked me in there. And, you know, it was just horrible. Then they put me on a, uh, some kind of disturbed behavior list. So oh, I remember um, you telling me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Then I fought that and, uh, the, uh, MOPH were my representatives when we went and they removed it because my transition wasn't right. So when I went through all that, that's when I decided, well, man, I need to, you know, make it known to other service members or at least help them navigate through it. And you did that for a while. You helped uh, several of the people that I recommended to you and uh, our friend, you, well, you tried to help our friend Gary. I don't know mm-hmm. that there's help for Gary. Um, and then you were also kind of um, going to school too. You became mm-hmm. a paralegal or paralegal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what drew you to that? Or what? What drew you, what drew you to your to going to become a paralegal? Oh, uh, really? Just just for the uh, education benefits from the the stipend, monthly stipend, mm-hmm. which helps a lot. Um, so, did you have any desire though to do it because of your your past run-ins with the law, or? No, not really, because the the paralegal thing is uh, it's really just underpaid and stuff. Um, when I started looking for, you know, how I was going to get that extra little income in, then uh, the paralegal just made, you know, kind of piqued my interest again, just to be able to, to help people. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
Um, again, if you if you're cool with it, I'd like to talk to you about some of the mental health issues that you went through while you were transitioning mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. and all of that. How did you deal um, with leaving the military? How was how was you how were you mentally coming out of the military? Yeah, I wasn't good. I wasn't in a good place at all. Um, but actually became addicted to all my uh, pain medication, some of the mental health medication, anything that would cause drowsiness or, you know, kind of an offset mindset. You know, I got addicted to, and I was like that for, actually, I just quit taking all of my meds probably about five years ago. And oh, wow. um, yeah, yeah. Then I, um, you know, allowed myself to go into depression and be stressed and all. And so it was, a, it was really difficult transition for me and then uh, i think the only thing that really helped me is every day i I worked on making a small change you know if i didn't make the change or i made it and then failed at it then you know i'd make another change and then work on that one again so i know you had a couple of hospitalizations and again i hope you're okay with talking about this um Mm -hmm. what was going through your mind prior to those hospitalizations Prior to what? Prior to your hospitalizations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was kind of fed up with everything. I was fed up. You know, I didn't see that I was going anywhere. I wasn't progressing in life. You know, uh, the person that I was married to was very toxic, very strong-willed, strong-spoken. You know, it finally got to the point. To, you know, she just told me should just kill yourself we'll all be better that way and i took it to heart and that's when uh, the first time i took uh man, i guess around 60 pills something like that and um woke up to sternum rub in the back of an ambulance and fought them pretty much as hard as i could you know i, I was just uh reached that point that you know i didn't know then that you know, suicide was a permanent solution to temporary situation. You know, I'd been going through it for so long. I felt kind of a failure because I wasn't able. I'd always seen myself as a, a mentally strong individual. And now I'm seeing myself kind of just buckle down and not able to progress and stuff. So I didn't feel that, that I really needed to keep going through that. And so I attempted suicide twice. Yeah. I died three times the second time. Mm-hmm. So was the was that the time that you were hospitalized? That wasn't the time that you were hospitalized. The first time wasn't the time that you were hospitalized uh, in like a coma for a while, was it? No, that was the second time. That's uh, the second time I, I took uh, probably three times the amount of pills. I barricaded myself in the house, uh, screwing the door shut, the window shut, you know, everything that I thought would make access or easy access into the house. And then, uh, the the ex she called my my brother him and my daughter's mother showed up and some other her husband i think and uh, he actually got in through the kitchen window and he found me you know my body just laying there i was i didn't have a pulse or anything and when he yelled out for help that's when the the neighbor went and started doing performance cpr on me mm-hmm. so i mean so let me ask you this and again mm-hmm. Uh, trying to be gentle, but also trying to really get get to uh, know your story. Yeah, you um, don't need to be gentle. <laughs> I know. But yeah. what drove you to actually go as far as screwing doors shut and windows shut? Well, the first time when I woke up in the hospital and all that, I was just very upset because you know I didn't 
at that time I wanted to be dead, you know. I, I just I was done with it. I was fed up with it, you know. I was fed up with my marriage. I was fed up with everything that was there. It seemed like at that time everything was. Um, if it wasn't negative, then I wasn't, you know, positive enough to see that there was any positivity at all in my life at that time. So the second time to keep them from coming in and you know stopping me or keeping me alive, I just would I barricaded myself in there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will say suicide attempts are a cry for help. Uh, mm-hmm. This second one definitely does not seem like anyone would have been able to talk you out of it. Um, as far as trying to call somebody and talk about it or. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, the cry for help to, to a suicide attempt is actually months or years before the attempt actually happens, you know, it's just that people aren't paying attention to it, you know, and instead of being there and, hey, man, you need help, you know, they're like, oh, you'll be okay. Or, you know, you, you got to just see your way through. You're strong. You can do it and this and that. And then they're not really paying attention to what you're telling them. So I think that's when the cry came. The, the second time it was no longer a cry. It was already like, okay, I'm done. I'm fed up with it. So, Yeah. So, and it, it gets to the point, even even in the doctor uh, visits that I'd go to and stuff like that, they'd always ask, is suicidal ideation? Yes. And then that was it. They wouldn't say anything about it. You know, really? have you attempted suicide? Yes. And then that was it. You know, it was never brought up or anything like that. So there was really, even in the professional field, where that should highlight, you know, all kinds of, you know, red lights and bells and whistles, it didn't. It didn't. It was just like regular question on there and it, it really didn't alarm anybody. So so during this time, were you seeking help with um, the VA or any anything else? I never dealt with the VA ever since that, that time that uh, that I got locked into the emergency room, went through all that crap with them. You know, they, they're beneficial to a lot of people. But to me, I just didn't see them beneficial to me. So I, I did all of my care through the, the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same same here. And in fact, because of you, you hooked me up with uh, Teresa over at RBH, who even last mm-hmm. year I saw, I was seeing up until the pandemic, actually, I think I saw her the week after everything shut down and then mm-hmm. saw her once last year, but it got weird. Face masks mm-hmm. and, and all that just isn't a good place for counseling. Right. But did you get any... Um, any help afterwards from professionals or did you just kind of say after the second one, okay, I've been shot. I've been blown up. I tried to commit suicide. So apparently I'm stuck here uh, and God's not going to let me go anywhere. I, I think um, like professional intervention, as far as psychiatry, psychology is only as good as you let it be. You know, if, if you're not mentally set to make a change, they can tell you anything that they want. They have all kinds of different approaches that they use and stuff like that. Um, they have a bunch of different tools and tactics that they use. Uh, they can teach you to use when you find yourself in a stressful situation or, you know, a depressive situation. But if you're really not mentally set on it, it's not going to make a difference. Everything they tell you is kind of just like blah, 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 blah. Uh, what really made the change is because I had a third uh, suicidal, active suicidal ideation, uh, and I uh, held a nine millimeter to my head all night, and uh, it was scary. And the sheriffs uh, showed up, so you know my plan was to do suicide by cop, 
And then uh, one of my former friends showed up and kind of told the sheriff what kind of work I did. I had just made a couple of cool arrests, you know, and um, they left. And when they left, I mean, it was like, what the hell are they going to leave? I mean, but they did. They said uh, he's not going to cause harm to anybody but himself. So they took off. And um, when they left, I was able to actually think and kind of process, you know, what I was doing again. And at that time, that's when I finally realized, you know what? I don't want to be dead. I just want the problems to go away, you know. And I didn't realize how much I was uh, allowing myself to feed into these problems and everything else until, you know, um, that point that I realized that, you know, I'm not the only one that has problems. I'm not the only one that goes through this. There's people that have been through worse. The only thing is they don't have insurance. They don't have the availability to be able to walk into a hospital anytime they want to be looked at or cared for, you know, that I have. So I, I found myself being more as a uh, dependent to welfare, you know, and kind of setting myself up for failure because I didn't make myself mentally strong because I let the system, you know, over me the whole way through. So during all of this, you, you just alluded to it and I, I didn't get my timeline straight. Otherwise I would have brought it up earlier. During all this, you've graduated, um, you're paralegal, you're still mm -hmm. married to your current, to your recent ex-wife. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point in time, you kind of got out of the paralegal day in, day out stuff and got into, uh, what was it, process serving and bounty hunting. Right, right. <clears throat> process serving, bounty hunting, private investigations auto recovery, mostly stolen vehicles mm -hmm. so, and uh, social media investigations. Did any of that, was any of that trying to fill a hole for what you thought you were missing from being in the military? And deploying? that was, that was like the best thing that I could have done because uh, even though I had my, my days that I'd spend, you know, fall into a stressful time, you know, stay in bed for a couple of weeks or whatever, you know, just downing all my pain meds and stuff like that. It still put me in a, a position of comfort because the same danger was there all the time as there uh, when we were in Iraq. And so I think that's kind of what kind of landed me, you know, being able to start functioning again day to day because I was interacting with regular people. But yet, you know, I had the opportunity to go out and, and look for the dangerous part of it as well. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about some of the type of people that you would bounty hunt. Was it just small uh, domestic abuse or did it get big? Well, the, the first, the big one I had that I made 10 grand on was um, two counts aggravated rape, two counts aggravated kidnapping. So oh, he had wow. uh, kidnapped two, two females at knife point and raped them. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about um executing that arrest i mean you, we've all seen dog the bounty hunter on tv how how close to what you were doing resembled what they show mm, well dog the bounty hunter is, is a tv show and they look for ratings so you know they had all the extra drama screaming yelling all that you know ironically like with these guys i did it took me about two and a half weeks to catch them um i placed a device on the wife's vehicle and was tracking her all her movements and she was the one that got him out on bond and um yeah that's how i ended up finding him but no, actually it's just a lot of surveillance a lot of patience and uh smart thinking because you know a lot of them have guns or knives or 
children around that can be injured. You know, I never carried a gun. I just had my taser with me, uh, pepper spray. So everything I did was calculated and, and uh, based on my surveillance. Did you get a lot of uh, people fighting you or did most people come over relatively non-aggressive? Well, All right, we got Ray back. Yay. And look, he's inside. So as we were talking, um, so did you have any people that were overly aggressive towards you? Did you get into fights? Yeah, I had that. <clears throat> that one young man, a 22-year-old. And uh, yeah, they, they, I had him down on the ground wrestling with them. And then his girlfriend showed up and uh, she pulled the taser prongs out of him. So that's when he started engaging with uh, resisting. And then he had uh, two of his gang member friends were there and I was just pleading with them. Hey, let me take him to jail. He'll be out of jail in an hour. You can bond him out again. It's not a big deal. And, uh, you know, they didn't do it. Uh, I guess uh, the guy came from behind the dumpster. But, uh, yeah, they ended up pistol whipping me. And, you know, I was kind of just laid out on the ground. I could hear everything they were saying, but I couldn't see anything. It was all black. And then I, I felt, you know, where he hit me upside the head three more times after that. And then when they uh, when they were leaving, he told his buddies, like, shoot him. And the guy says, no, he's not armed, you know. So they just took off. He said, let's just get out of here. Mm -hmm. Damn. So mm -hmm. was that the one that made you stop bounty hunting or was it something else that finally drove you to stop? No, I finally just started wanting to live life. I think what really made me uh, make changes is because I was addicted to smoking marijuana. I was smoking, you know, pound, pound and a half a month, you know, spending a lot of money on it. Uh, both my daughters are married to military men. They finally, they got uh, deployed to different states. So I used that as an opportunity to, you know, make a change. And that's when I moved and, you know, I made the change and yeah. smoking. Yeah. Uh, so what made you go back to Mexico? Uh, to be able to try to live my retirement, you know, it's, it's uh, starting life over, over, you know, everything completely. So do you, um, I know that before you left, you were talking about doing public speaking and maybe writing a book. Is that yeah. still on the agenda? I mean, obviously 2020s kind of put a kibosh on public speaking, but mm -hmm. are you still yeah. thinking about doing that? I still want to do it. Uh, I talked to my wife. I just got married not too long ago. I uh, talked to her about uh, finding a uh, publisher here in, in uh, Cancun to see if it's more affordable. Uh, I talked to somebody in, when I was in San Antonio, but it was just too expensive. So still trying to, to find an avenue to be able to get into that. Yeah. What about public speaking? Do you feel like you, it's something that you still want to do? Yeah. Yeah. I would love to do that too. Yeah. That kind of comes, I don't know uh, how deep or whatever, but it, it's kind of hand in hand. Once you issue a book, then they start scheduling, you know, meetings for you to do public speaking and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So what, what would you focus on, on your book? I'm not really sure because I have so many different walks of life that I've been through. I mean, I went through, you know, all the, the criminal history and then, how to turn the, the criminal history around to where I work nothing but professional jobs my whole life versus those people that say I can't find a job because of my criminal history. Um, you know, I have the, the combat experience, 
uh, bad relationships, you know, living suicide attempt, uh, the bounty hunting, the auto recoveries, you know, recovering stolen cars from the, the gang cartel here in Mexico, you know, so. So how, do, how is that, um, that side of it, the, the cartel issue down there? Is it a big deal where you're at? It is. Yes. Yeah. Everything. And uh, it don't get talked about because of the tourism here, but yeah, everything here is controlled by the, the uh, cartel. Mm-hmm. Are they, how do I say this? Are they benevolent dictators down there? Like if you don't mess with them, they don't fuck with you or. That's pretty much how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Do they know, do they know you or. Okay. They, so they, they're not looking to start trouble with people living down there unless you have a reason to cross them. The most of the people that have problems with them are okay. So the businesses here, they, they get, you know, to where they have to pay taxes to the cartels. And if they stop paying, then that's when they'll go and do their thing. And uh, other people that get into problems are if they're selling drugs or trying to take over, you know, a space that belongs to them or something, then that's when they have the exchange there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, still trying to do a little bit of the, of the adrenaline junkie thing, living in a cartel world. <laughs> so do you, what do you miss about being up here or do you miss anything about being up in the States? Uh, nothing at all. I don't agree. You know, I, I think the United States is really doing everything that they can for me now. And that's just by, you know, keep compensating me for, you know, the sacrifice that I, me and a lot of others made, you know, for the country, but uh, outside of that, yeah, I don't agree with a whole lot of the political issues or anything that they deal with. They're actually um, the, the taxing law enforcement, you know, too many times law enforcement is just on the wrong side. And it's completely different. You see a lot more when you come up here and see that, you know, how you're able to live life and how, you know, law enforcement is kind of like nonchalant about everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you on that. I think that uh, sometimes, and I, I will honestly say, in my opinion, a slight fault of how we look at law enforcement that they are unaccountable. Yeah. And it may not, it may not be the department. It may be one person who has that wrong ego. Uh, I can tell you as a chief, there are quite a few chiefs I've had in my past who thought because they had the anchors meant that they were above the law. And then there's 99% of the other chiefs who aren't that way. But that mm-hmm. one that thinks he's above the law sticks out really well. Yeah. So, so that um, you were still here when 2020 started, right? In San Antonio. Yeah. So talk to me about the difference between life in Mexico versus the life life in San Antonio during the lockdown. Uh, well, I was over there during the lockdown. I wasn't here. When I got up here, I came uh, September 20th, and they had just barely opened the hotel zone over here, the area where I live. They just opened it. But as far as differences is people don't cry about uh, wearing a mask here. Everywhere you go, they, they check your temperature. They have hand sanitizer. They have uh, foot mats. They have water. So you rinse your shoes before you're going in. So they're very uh, cautious with it. Yeah. Are, are, mm-hmm. are they requiring masks down there? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, you can't go into any. I mean, if you go to the bar or something or someplace you're going to eat, of course, you go in with the mask kind of like over there and then you remove to eat or whatever. But uh, here, everywhere you go requires a mask. Mm-hmm. And they, they have uh, one way in, one way out. 
in one form or another. Mm -hmm. uh, see, that to me kind of makes sense in a, in a way that in buildings where you have two, an entrance and an exit, instead of having mm -hmm. people come in, in and out at the same point, why not? Yeah. Have a, but unfortunately, what I noticed here is not a lot of places are designed to have uh, an entrance and then a separate exit. So it makes it a little bit difficult. Well, they, they, there's a lot of places here that don't have that as well. But what they'll do is they'll split the main entrance and then they'll have the, the entrance where they have the hand sanitizer, the foot mats and everything. And then the exit, you know, barricaded off on the other half of the door entry. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So yeah. is, how is how is the COVID go? How is there? Why can I not talk? How is COVID down there right now? Is it still pretty big or is it slowed down? No, not really. Uh, it slowed down. Yeah, we were at, uh, in the orange light for a little while where uh, basically they stopped, you know, tourists from coming and stuff like that. But now we're down to the yellow. So and they're, they're really not a whole lot of talk about new cases or anything like that. They have a COVID stand right here where the, the one of the main attraction areas are where they do testing and stuff like that. So they're pretty up on it. So what about uh, vaccine availability? Uh, vaccines haven't hit here just yet. Are you are you looking forward to when that happens and things open up more or? Um, well, you know, things are kind of like in spurts here when when the United States shuts down, that's when everybody starts coming up here. So oh, okay. you'll, you'll see, yeah, you'll see a lot of activity up here, you know, like on a week, a weekend and a couple of weeks go by and then, you know, you'll get another spurt of people and stuff. Yeah. Are there a lot of expats where you're at? A lot of what? Uh, expats, Americans that move down there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's there are people from everywhere. There, yeah, a lot of them they, they come here to live. Mm -hmm. So, do you plan on coming back up here and visiting anytime soon? No, actually, I just got approved uh, yesterday, Monday. I go and take my picture and fingerprinting already to become a Mexican national. Nice. So, yeah. are you gonna? Are you going to? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Are you going to rescind your American citizenship? or recant, whatever that word is, give it up. No, or you're going to keep it's a, uh, it's dual citizenship. So it's recognized oh, okay. in, in the United States. A lot of countries around the world recognize dual citizenship. Yeah. So I have a lot of friends who are thinking about going overseas, uh, whether it's down to Mexico, Costa Rica, how has your ability to get healthcare been? Uh, the VA covers healthcare benefits in other countries. What about TRICARE? Because we both have TRICARE. Did, are you able to use that down there? No, TRICARE doesn't, no, but the VA does. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, what else has been going on with you, man? Nothing really, you know, just here living life. Uh, finally, you know, I think I'm finally at a good place in life now. So, uh, mentally, you know, it, it took everything that I went through and, you know, being able to stop taking medication I think it's probably the, the biggest downfall for any veteran is to, to be on meds. Uh, when I was first going through, I mean, uh, doctors over-medicating was just a huge thing. So, you know, getting away from that here, like I said, I mean, the police, you can drive 100 miles an hour and they won't tell you anything. I mean, they're just there, you know, on their phones, whatever cars here with no headlights driving like nothing and they don't tell them anything. I mean, 
it's completely, you know, you're able to finally live and without restraint, I guess you could say. Nice. Mm-hmm. So have you gotten into any of the natural medicine um, away from traditional medicine? None at all. No, I thought, you know, smoking weed was going to be a nice natural intervention for me, but I end up, you know, abusing it and being addicted to it. I tried to stop for a couple of years, never could stop. And finally, uh, I just decided I got to do this. And that's what I moved up here for. Mm -hmm. Well, the times that I knew you, you weren't a drinker. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that it was the weed or do you just think you have an addictive personality? I probably have an addictive personality because I went from, from the medication to weed and But then, you know what, a lot of people say you can't get addicted to weed, but yet I hear Mike Tyson says that he's tried to stop. He can't stop Snoop Dogg, the same thing. And he can't stop. So I think people have a big misconception on on weed being addictive. So I don't know if that is really an addictive personality or the weed itself is actually a a device. I mean, that you become really. Or both. Um, You're, you're. Mm -hmm predisposition to want to be addicted to something may Mm -hmm. also help. And yeah, there may be an addictive property to weed. What I meant more of was uh, like homeopathic medicine, more um, less of the traditional, go see a doctor, one doctor that covers one thing um, versus like homeopathic, which is more herbs and, more grounding yourself and spirit getting back into like spiritual and nature and that type of thing. Cause I mean, no, I haven't tried anything, anything else. No. Cause I, I mean, try, down, I really try to stay away from doctors and stuff now down there. I mean, you just have so much nature and so much, so much niceness down there. Um, maybe one of these days I'll come down and visit you. You need to It's nice up here. Yeah. It, has, it has a one fatal flaw that I can't handle humidity it's way too humid down there uh i think you you get used to it you get used to it because when i first moved up here man three o'clock in the morning i was sweating i was sweating bad it was just so hot but now i really don't even sweat anymore you know it's just you really get used to it your body becomes accustomed you can see in fact you know you can see the tourists right away because they're walking around with their uh, wet, uh, their shirts soaking wet from sweat. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? So it's it's that that blatant. And you moved over there in what September? You said so. September, yeah. Did you do that because you wanted to get the hell away from all the chaos that was going to happen after the election? No, I did it because I wanted to live a better life and uh, I wanted to stop smoking weed. So that uh, the girls uh, see Sabrina, Brandy. Sabrina had already moved to Virginia and then Brandy was getting ready to move to South Carolina. So I seen that as an opportunity to, to make a change. And you know what, I've, I've been able to do it. I haven't smoked weed now for over six months. Yeah. Nice. Congratulations. I would have, I don't know why I just picture Cancun being an easy place to find whatever it is that you're looking for. Oh, and it is. I just don't look for it. I don't desire it or anything. That's a good, that that's, that's probably the more important part is that you've come to that point where you're not, actively looking so it may be everywhere but you don't need to have it yeah yeah because i have my friends here that smoke all the time and stuff and i can be there with them and just never even want to touch it you know yeah yeah kind of a lot to 
But that's a good thing that you were able to overcome it without having to go back through the system of, um, of the medical care or even the legal system. Cause let's face yeah. it, smoking a lot of weed in California is still a lot different than smoking a lot of weed in Texas because of yeah. the laws. Yeah. Um, when it's all said and done and the story's finally written, are you happy with the journey you've taken to get to where you're at right now? I am. I'm very, very happy, uh, proud of myself, you know, had a lot of major downfalls, you know, life-threatening downfalls, but, you know, for the most part, I'm glad to be where I'm at, and I'm glad that I've had every experience that I've had, yeah. So do you have any, um, anything that you don't feel like you accomplished while you were up here, or do you think you did everything that you wanted to do? I think I did pretty darn good. I yeah. think you did too, man. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end this because I, I just got nothing else. I mean, we've, we've covered almost everything that I can think of, mm -hmm. but I definitely, you know, in a few months, maybe six months, want you back on and we can talk some more about Mexico life, um, surviving the pandemic and just whatever else is going on. I, I do want you to come on quite regularly because I think yours is yep. a pretty inspiring story. We got to buy you some pens, some paper, get you on Microsoft Word or something. Just start typing, man. Just start typing. I know you have a great story to tell. Yeah, appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right, I'm going to stop the recording. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.